This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. I'm Jessica Knoll. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. It's the middle of October 1985 in a small town, Clifton, Texas. Clifton, Texas, I don't think has changed that much since 1985 when the murder happened. This is Leslie Draffin. She's a journalist and evening news anchor for KCEN in Temple, Texas. Some mills, cute downtown, cute little restaurants, but very much a typical small Texas town. It's here that Joe Bryan and his wife, Mickey, have built their lives. They're both lifelong educators. Joe is the principal of the local high school, and Mickey is a fourth grade teacher down the street. I like that size school system because as the high school principal there, we probably had close to 600 kids in high school, and I knew every kid by name in sight. I couldn't wait to get to work every day. Everyone laughs at me like I've got three heads when I tell them I, I loved it. I couldn't wait to get there. I loved the the relationship I had with the kids. I would talk to the kids, and I would be in the hallways at lunchtime, and they would come up and talk to me and lean up against me, and or they'd come in and say, yeah, Mr. Brown, can I talk to you today? And yeah, come on in, and they told some very personal, you know, family problems, and they didn't know how to deal with it. And some of the kids cried, and some of them didn't. But I tried to always be there with for them and with them, and never judgmental. And I listened to them, and I just let them know that they were loved and they could be safe and secure at the high school. Joe and Mickey have been married for 16 years. They have no children, and have dedicated their lives to education. They had actually met as kids, but they didn't get together and get married until they were both getting their master's degree. I first met Mickey when she was in the first grade, and I met Mickey there. She was the quiet one that sat in the back of the room and never said anything, and I never realized then that we would ever get connected. And I saw her through the years occasionally. She was the one that was always solid, stable, uh, not changing, no high drama. Uh, very loyal friend, uh, a great wife. I just, I can't say enough about that, that I appreciated her and respected her so much. They just seemed very, very cute together. And as a couple together, they didn't have any kids, but they were described as loving kids, and they would take these cute walks together hand in hand through their neighborhood after dinner. We did it to, to, to get away from the telephone and just give us some very just one-on-one time with each other where it's nobody but just the two of us and we would laugh and I teased her about her duck walk and she teased me about what followed behind me and and, uh, we laughed and talked and it was a special time and we would stop visiting with people out in their yards and we usually walked about three and a half miles every day that we could we did that Joe would help her grade papers, and they were described as a team, a true team, where they really just worked in collaboration together with each other, which is really sweet. On October 14th, Joe leaves for his annual principals conference in Austin, Texas, a little under three hours away. It was the Texas Association of Secondary School Principals Convention, and I went each year, and I was a member of the Texas Small Legislative Committee. In fact, I was chairman of it at the time for smaller schools. Uh, I was very active in our organization and I was there when the, 
every year I was the, a principal, I went there for the meetings and was active in the political aspect of it in the interest of our school and all the other schools in the state. While Joe was away, Mickey seemingly had a normal Monday. She went to school as usual. She had, I think, stopped by her parents' house to chat with them, the Blues, and she had picked up some clothes that she had gone uh, and taken to a tailor. She'd picked those back up. I guess her and Joe had bought some clothes the weekend before or a couple days before, and she had dropped them off at her tailor's, and I believe she was picking those back up. But she was home alone because Joe was in Austin for a uh, principal's conference. And it was supposedly really stormy that day, that night, um... And from what I know about her kind of last thing, around 9 o'clock, 9.15, Monday night, she and Joe were talking on the phone. They were watching some type of an award show on the television simultaneously, even though he was 120 miles away. And so they were watching that together and chatting and then hung up the phone around 9.15. And that would be the last time that Joe would speak to or hear from Mickey Bryan again. The next day, Tuesday morning... Mickey's classroom's empty at school. A fellow teacher walks by and immediately thinks, oops, maybe she's sick and they forgot to get a substitute teacher. So the teacher goes to the principal and says, hey, did you forget to call somebody in? Mickey isn't here. And the principal immediately knew that that was weird. Mickey was somebody who always got to school early, like 7 o'clock in the morning, way before the students, just so she could prep for her day. So the principal, knowing that Joe was out of town, he calls Vicky's parents Otis and Vera Blue. And they kind of all decide, well, we'll go over to the house because Otis and Vera had the key. The principal, I guess, kind of feeling like something wasn't right, decided he was going to go as well. So they all go to the house. The Blues open up the door. They're calling for Mickey. And they're kind of all in the house. And from what I've read, her mother is the one who went to the bedroom and found Mickey shot. So... She walks in, sees Mickey. The principal comes in right afterwards, kind of understands, okay, she's dead, and gets the parents out into the living room so they don't have to be there with the body, and he calls 911. Police arrive, and soon a phone call goes out to Joe at the principal's conference. I was at a meeting there at the Hyde Regency Hotel in about... I guess between 8 and 8.30 and 9 o'clock, Harold Massey, our executive director, came into the meeting where I was uh, a, a attendee, and he told me he needed to talk to me, and he took me out in the hallway and told me that Mickey had been killed. And I asked him if he was sure he had the right person. I just just could not wrap my mind around the fact that Mickey might be dead and why she was dead. Um, And everything from then was just, I was numb and in shock. In fact, I went into shock. Some of the men, other principals that I knew went with me to my room and I was just shivering in really icy cold and they got me in the bed and one of the men went and got me some orange juice to drink. Um, and then I calmed down a little bit. Um, it was absolutely horrible. It's been the worst day of my life. After his colleagues drive Joe back home to Clifton, 
He immediately notices some things are missing. They ask him to look around. He immediately notices that his 357, which he kept in the bedroom, loaded with buckshot, I believe, because he used it for killing snakes. The gun is gone. Jewelry's missing and some cash was missing too. But initially they thought it was somebody had broken in and, and had shot her. Um, she was shot four times, which is super violent. Once in the abdomen and f- three times in the head. So that right there is a lot. And she had on a nightdress, but it was pulled up around her waist. So she was laying back across the bed with her feet sort of dangling off the side, naked from the waist down. So you imagine that as a mom walking in to see your daughter like that shot. I mean, it's just so gruesome. Joe, Mickey's family, and their small community is shattered. Who would kill a popular fourth grade teacher in her own home? As Joe is asking this question himself, he's also trying to gain some piece of his life back. Well, I was still just numb and in shock from Mickey being killed. Uh, And when I was finally able to go in the house, it just... It was a dead house. There was, seemed to be no feeling in the house. Um, Mickey filled the house with love. Uh, the house was alive with her there. And it was just a dud, so to speak, of a home. And I thought, I thought to myself, gee, this is really going to be hard to come back here and live here. Mickey's older brother hears of his sister's murder and immediately flies out from Florida to be with his family in Clifton. Tuesday night, he's there. He gets the car, which is brought back up to the area by that other principal, and he's borrowing it for the time being because Joe is staying with his mother about, I think, 30 or 40 miles away in Elmont, another tiny little town. So Charlie Blue has Joe's car the whole time, gets it Tuesday. And the next thing that happens is on Wednesday... Charlie Blue takes it upon himself either because he has his own thoughts he needs to or there's also talk that a funeral director may have mentioned to him, hey, you should get your own special investigator because you just want to make sure it's going to be done really correctly. So Charlie calls this guy, Bud Saunders, who'd worked for the family out in West Texas on some property out there. He's ex-FBI and he's worked as their private investigator. So Bud Saunders comes to town on Wednesday. Over the next couple of days, some evidence is believed to have been found. The only weird things they find are a cigarette butt on the kitchen floor, Mickey and Joe do not smoke, and this underwear in a wastebasket in the bedroom upstairs where Mickey was killed. Now, in testimony in the court cases, they claimed that this underwear was moist with semen. Now, in the actual reports, they never really say out loud that it is moist, but they're like, okay, there's semen on this underwear. And it was in the trash. And as for other forensic evidence, what ends up happening, Charlie Blue and Bud Saunders are driving around on Friday, back roads of Texas, talking about the case. And they have to use the bathroom. So they pull over and go to the bathroom on the side of the road. And because it had been pouring rain, they say they get mud on their boots. So they open up the trunk of Joe's car to look for a towel. And at that point, that's when they see this flashlight kind of face up with something that they visually identify as blood on it with blue fragments. And so the two men get back in the car. They first go to the Brian home because they figure the cops might still be there. They aren't. So they go to a neighbor's house. They call and they meet up with the Texas Rangers who take the flashlight. This is about 12 hours later after they apparently find the flashlight. The Rangers get the flashlight, look through the trunk, 
don't take anything else and give the car right back to Charlie. So the car has not really been searched at all. Just this flashlight's taken out of the trunk. Charlie gets the car back, and then that flashlight becomes the prime piece of evidence that made Joe the suspect. Nothing else at all had made Joe a suspect until that flashlight was found. With no other suspects, investigators believe that with these two pieces of evidence, they can begin to link Joe to the murder. They think the wet underwear proves that he was at the house around the time of the murder and that the flashlight was held by Joe as he shot his wife in their darkened bedroom. In 1985, there was no DNA testing, but blood typing as well as blood spatter analysis were high technology for the time. Local police asked an expert from a nearby town to come and assist them. Bloodstain pattern analysis, if you think about that show Dexter, I, I feel like that's what's on the top of my mind when I think of it. It's it's the way that blood splatters when a crime is committed. In the 80s, it was pretty new. Um, Robert Thorman was a Harker Heights police officer who had gotten trained in bloodstain pattern analysis, it turns out, in June of that year. This is October. Just a couple of months, he had like a 40-hour class, and this was one of the very first cases he ever worked on. So Robert Thorman comes up, looks at the crime scene. He's there pretty quickly after Mickey's found dead. He looks at the crime scene, and then when the flashlight is found, he surmises that the flashlight was held by the shooter, and the splashback of the blood happened because it was in the shooter's hand as he shot Mickey. Investigators and the district attorney believe they have enough evidence. And eight days after Mickey Bryan is killed, police arrest Joe Bryan on murder charges. Joe Bryan is arrested. He has no criminal history at all. Everybody is shocked. The people who knew them say over and over again, and even 30 years ago when I talked to them in 2018, they're still saying these two never fought. It was a shock. Even after arresting Joe, investigators still need to prove why Joe killed Mickey. What's his motive for killing his own wife? And at some point, they find a Chippendales calendar. So Joe says, um, well, that's a gag gift that me and Mickey bought for a friend. But they have this Chippendales calendar they found in in the trunk. And Joe was, he doesn't drink. It was described, he was described as somebody who would rather bake a cake than go play poker or go fishing with the boys. And somehow those things that he liked turned into this narrative of, is he gay? In the special prosecutor Gary Llewellyn's notes and in the Texas Rangers notes, Ranger Wiley, both of them have question marks. He gay? Question mark. Is she a lesbian, question mark? I mean, they even have things saying with explicit language. Possible motives. One, queer. Two, money. Three, need to get out of second marriage without a divorce. Another romantic interest. Wife starting menopause or current bitch. Involvement with crime or malfeasance and wife threatened to expose. Those are the three things typed out in Gary Llewellyn's notes. But the truth is, Nikki could not have children. Because we tried for years and... Went to many doctors, and she just could not have children. So I think that they, people who wanted to slander me, started that, and then it just took off like a hailstorm. The prosecution believes they have their murderer. Joe says he's innocent. 
As both sides prepare their cases for trial, Joe details what happens next. First of all, you've got to find attorneys to represent you. Then you're shocked at the expense of it. Uh, then they're asking you 10 million questions. Uh, you're distraught over you know, your wife's death. Uh, you're distraught over the fact you've been arrested for a horrible crime that you're living with. And then you've got these attorneys questioning you about your life. Uh, there's no privacy. There's no secrets. Uh, they're not ashamed to ask you any question. And you understand that because they're trying to defend you. Uh, they're listening to outside sources of people. They're trying to investigate. Some people are honest with them. Some of them are not. Uh, it's really frustrating to know that people may be against you and you wonder why. Um, you know, why did they do this? Um, I realized that the Clifton Police Department was desperate to try to find a, the killer, and it's just real difficult. And then people were making up things that were not true. Um, I don't think in a vindictive way. Um, yeah, I don't know all the answers to that, but I know each day before we would get to the courthouse, one of the attorney, local attorneys there would meet with my attorneys, and he would get tell them all the gossip that it heard. Well, then you know, they're telling me what they heard, and I think, gee, that's not right. Why would people say something like that? And it was just a very uh, horrifying experience, and I learned very tragically that with whomever killed Mickey and we believe we know who killed Mickey uh, that your life, my life changed instantly from then on it was never the same because the person that you most you relied on and enjoyed being with and confided in is no longer with you and then you don't even have time to grieve the process before I'm arrested and then I've got the trials to deal with and We've been fighting this, as you know, for almost 35 years. On the next episode of True Crime Chronicles, the trial, the verdict, and the aftermath. This can happen to anybody in America. And, you know, policing agencies don't like hearing that and neither do people, but the facts and the reality is there. I'm Will Johnson. I'm here with Spencer Brudig and Jessica Knoll for True Crime Chronicle. Spencer, uh, you did a lot of the interviews, uh, especially the one with Joe Bryan this week, a lot of the work behind the scenes on this one. Um, and I'm sure we both have questions for you about what, what you learned in talking to him. Okay, Spencer. So at this point, he is awaiting trial uh, for the murder of his wife. And it seems like so far all they have is that flashlight as the major piece of evidence here. But what what really struck me in listening to this first episode of what's going to be two parts was the detective's notes about his possible motives that that uh, their the relationship was um, had some things going on in it. Whether it was. Um, you know, she wasn't being very nice, or maybe he's gay, or it was it was just really shocking to hear 
some of their ideas actually written out for, um, you know, for what would be part of the case file forever. Yeah, and and in talking with Joe about this, um, he really says that he he just couldn't wrap his head around why they would want to assassinate his character like this. And the local community really ran with that narrative that he was hiding this secret gay relationship. And the only thing they had to base that on, and correct me if I'm wrong, is they, they found a magazine in the house. Right, it was like a Chippendales calendar. And several people spoke that, you know... Um, he was known as being someone that would, you know, rather bake cakes and play piano. But these things have nothing to do with your sexuality. Um, and for some reason, the community and his friends, even some of his friends turned against him. His church said that they were, didn't feel comfortable with him um, there anymore because whether it be over his sexuality or, the, you know, that he was being charged with murder, um, people turned quickly. And there really wasn't any evidence to support he was gay. And even if he was, um, why would that mean that he murders his wife, you know? Yeah, but to, you know, to hear about the, those aspects of his personality and then to tie them to his sexuality, you know, it's laughable to hear today, you know, even a few decades ago. It just seems absurd. Whatever we feel about uh, this case so far, the investigation, what we know is that investigators at the time, whatever they were basing this on, laughable or not, they felt like they probably had the guy. They didn't have any other suspects, right, Spencer? Right, and they, and they moved quickly, right? Eight days after her, her murder, he is arrested. And at first, they are fully cooperating with Joe Bryan because they think that it was a burglary gone wrong. Um, but because of that flashlight and the quote-unquote wet underwear, moist underwear, they completely changed their tune into uh, focusing on him as the only suspect. Did his alibi check out that he was actually, you know, hundreds of miles away at a conference? This will be brought up in the next episode, but you have to remember this was, he had a a vision problem, which we have not talked about yet. Um, He was three hour drive away in Austin and it was a dark and stormy night. So the idea that he, and he was last seen at around 10 PM. So he would have had to have gotten in his car, driven three hours, murdered his wife, cleaned up, driven back three hours because he had an 8 AM presentation in the morning. And he was told of his wife's murder while in this uh, principal's conference. So, you know, it's one of those things where it, it just doesn't really add up for for him murdering his wife in the way that they're saying it happened, that prosecution is saying it happened. So there's two guys driving Joe's car, one of them being his brother-in-law. Who was the other guy that—and these two are the ones who found that flashlight in his trunk and took it to police. Who was that other guy? Charlie Blue is um, Mickey Bryan's brother, older brother, and he comes into town and he actually borrows Mickey and Joe's car to get around in. I guess Joe was staying with his mother and he didn't need his vehicle. And he is either tipped off by someone in the community or he, for some reason, has this idea in his head that he needs to hire extra help. He doesn't think that the small town police or the Texas Rangers are going to be able to handle this for whatever reason. And so he hires this guy named Bud Saunders, who he had worked with before on property disputes that that um, had come up in the past. So he brings this guy, Bud Saunders, in, and they are the ones that are driving on this back road when they, you know, kind of 
discover this flashlight in the back that supposedly has blood on it. So um, that's kind of, it's odd, of course. It's not totally unheard of, of bringing in, you know, special investigation. But what's interesting is that Charlie Blue, the brother, he actually hires someone else that we will be introduced to in the next episode. Um, He hires a special prosecutor to help the district attorney actually uh, go after Joe Bryan. So more to come on that. All right. Well, we'll be back next week with part two of this story. And Jessica, if people want to learn more about this one or talk about this case and others that we're covering, where can they go? You can go to our Facebook group page, Inside the Crime Vault, where we talk about this and other stories and other cases. And you can let us know if there's a case that you think that we should start digging into for an episode. Uh, Spencer, what can people do uh, to help us out? Spread the word. If you like this episode and True Crime Chronicles in general, please uh, give us a like. Give us a subscribe and tell your friends and family about us. We'd really appreciate it. If you are listening to this week's episode prior to May the 6th, uh, just want to remind our listeners that Vault Studios has a brand new podcast, Selena, A Star Dies in Texas, launching May 6th with the first two episodes and more to follow. So check that out. In the meantime, we will be back next week with part two of the Joe Bryan case.